Yesterday was the memorial of the 20-year anniversary of the towers falling through uh, terrorist activity. And this was a day that uh, turned our world in America upside down and caused us to feel vulnerable and rage. And, and so many emotions came together that day, even as we celebrated first responders who, who rushed into those towers to save lives, and many of them lost their lives as well, and stories of heroism and airplanes. And that day was a crazy and life-defining day for so many people. There's a book by a fellow named Os Guinness, and it's called Unspeakable, the subtitle Facing Up to Evil in an Age of Genocide and Terror. And he begins this book by telling about how on 9-11 he was supposed to have a dinner party um, in New York City. And that dinner party was not just a dinner party to get together, but it was also a discussion on the issue of evil. And so this group had some readings that they were going to discuss. And as I recall from what he said, the, the discussion initially was, is there a problem of evil? And then when they got together several weeks later, the discussion then changed to not, is there a problem, but how do we make sense of this? And Oskina says, one fellow there said, when I read some of these readings before September 11th, I thought they were far too dark. When I read them again after September 11th, they were, they were not nearly dark enough. We live in a time where it seems that there is an onslaught of bad news. And we try to process that the best way that we can. And one of the interesting things I find in talking to people from all different kinds of backgrounds and beliefs, you don't even have to believe in God to be able to envision a better world. To believe that there would be a better world if there wasn't so much suffering and so much dying. And to think if, if humanity could somehow just turn the corner so that we weren't so inhumane to one another, that would be a better world. And so let me just say, if you can envision a better world, if you can envision a world with less suffering, in fact, no suffering, if you can envision a world where love flourishes, then you have an entry point for understanding what Jesus was talking about in his life and ministry. In fact, I want to launch us this day with a key thought. The ability to envision a better world and the desire for a better world are important clues about what it means to be human and helps us to understand what Jesus has come to do for humanity. And that idea of a better world is exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of God. Now, if you were given a quiz and were asked the question, what is the one thing that Jesus talked about all the time? And you were to answer by saying the kingdom of God, you would be spot on. Jesus was obsessed with this idea. It's what he began his ministry talking about, and it's what he ended his ministry before he ascended to heaven talking about. And this is an important concept for us to get our minds around. As one professor said, Michael Spiegel, the Christian hope is not all the good things apart from this world. The Christian hope is this world apart from all the bad things. And so I want us to entertain this thought of what this world, apart from all the bad things, might be like. Because this is exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about the coming kingdom of God. So we're going to call our study today the Relentless Revolution. And we're going to call it that because Jesus is going to give us just two short and very simple yet powerful stories of this revolution, of this coming kingdom of God. So if you are new to Christianity, 
or maybe you've been a seasoned follower of Jesus, I want to invite all of us to lean into what Jesus is talking about in the text that we're going to study today from the Gospel of Luke. So as we get ready to look at that, would you pray with me and ask the Lord to teach us this day? Lord, all of us know deeply what it's like to live in this broken and bent world. It seems that we can hardly turn on the news without just seeing an onslaught of bad news. Stories about humanity's inhumanity to one another. Lord, many of us have experienced deep pain at the hands of others. And if we're honest, we've often inflicted pain on others as well through, through words, through actions. Lord, we, we long for a better world, even if we can't put words to it. We long for a world where there's no suffering, there's no pain and no death. And it seems like an impossible dream. And yet this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. So help us this day as we, as we lean into these stories of Jesus to understand what he's trying to get across to us, to root our, our, our lives and our desires and our hopes in this notion of the kingdom of God. And so we pray in his name. Amen. So what I want us to do is to go back to what we looked at last week and remind ourselves of the story because the text for today is going to begin with Jesus saying, therefore. So he's going to build on what just took place. And so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops in different cities along the way. And as a visiting rabbi, he's often asked to speak at the local synagogue, and that's exactly what happens. So Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 initially, and then we'll look at verses 18 through 21. So Luke tells us, now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So this is what we looked at last week. And let me just, by way of reminder, tell you, uh, describe what we learned last week. When we look at the miracles of Jesus, they're not just really interesting things that he did, or even astounding things that he did. The miracles of Jesus were a healing of things that had been broken, as well as a preview of coming attractions. It's a reversal of the curse and the brokenness of this world, as well as a foretaste of what is coming when Jesus sets everything to right. And so in this particular instance, Jesus, in healing this woman, brought healing to her, we're told, from, from the effect of the evil one upon this world. And so whenever we see these miracles, we're supposed to be dialed into what Jesus is doing and the story that he's telling. And so that brings us up to speed to the text we're going to talk about today. Verse 18, 
He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? This is an interesting way for Jesus to set up what he's going to talk about. He says, therefore. So what just happened, he's building on. This assault on the brokenness and evil of this world that was rectified in this healing of this woman. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? And so before we look and see what Jesus compared the kingdom of God to, let's just first stop and get crystal clear in our minds. What is the kingdom of God? We need to have this crystallized in our mind. And I've, I found through the years in talking with Christians, whether they're university students or whether they've been walking with Christ for, for many, many years, this notion of the kingdom of God is fuzzy at best. It's something like we know that Jesus talked about and we should be a little bit more dialed in than we, than we are. And so let's just, by way of reminder, remind ourselves what the kingdom of God is defined as. <laughs> Probably the best description of the hope of what will take place when the kingdom of God comes is found in the book of Zechariah, where there we're told the Lord will be king over the whole earth. This notion of the kingdom of God has in it the hope of one day the Lord, the God, the creator of all things, being king over all the earth. And that immediately puts us back into the story of God. And we look at this all the time. The story of the scriptures that we're told begins with God's good creation and partnering with humanity to establish his kingdom on the face of this world. But as that story goes, humanity turns back upon the creator. And we've all followed in that wake. And yet the hope is that that kingdom will one day be restored. And that hope that the Lord will one day be king over all the earth rooted the ancient people of the Hebrews, the people of Jesus, in the story of God. But they didn't know exactly how they were going to get there. It was just a hope. And this is found throughout all the prophets. Let me just give you a couple of examples. For example, in the book of Micah, we're told he, that is God, will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. A beautiful description of that coming day when God will set this world to right and nations will no longer make war. They will take their instruments of war and they will use them to cultivate this earth. And everyone will sit under their own fine and fig tree. What a beautiful description of prosperity. Or how about from the book of Isaiah? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A beautiful description from the prophet Isaiah of that coming day when this world is set right, when the kingdom of God comes in all its glory. And it's not just the nations will cease to be at war with one another, but even nature this beautiful description of nature living in harmony. One more from the book of Isaiah, this time from chapter 25. On this mountain, 
And the mountain is describing where God meets with his people. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Here you can, you can just see the voice of God speaking through Isaiah, straining to describe abundance and glory all around a feast. And it continues. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering? What is that veil? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So the hope of the coming kingdom of God, when, when God will reign over all the earth, is described as humanity flourishing, living in harmony with one another, the natural world living in harmony, and death itself being done away with. Cornelius Planiga, the professor from Calvin, said in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a great title, by the way, as the great writing prophets of the Bible knew, sin has a thousand faces. The prophets knew how many ways human life can go wrong because they knew how many ways human life could go right. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish made wise, and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. My friends, the voices of the prophets in giving us these descriptions of that glorious future is meant to stir us and to say, yes, that's exactly what I want to see. I want to see a world where evil is done away with, where there's no more suffering and no more pain, no more sorrow. That would be so refreshing. And so when Jesus came speaking about the gospel, this got people's attention. For example, in the opening of the Gospel of Mark, we're told that Jesus came into Galilee. That's the place where he had his primary ministry. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, the kingdom of God was drawing near. That future they, they longed for, that they hoped for, was coming near because God himself was coming near in the person of Jesus. And so let's Let's come to a definition of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the kind rule of God that results in the flourishing of humanity. When Jesus asked the question, what is the kingdom of God like? We're meant to invoke this idea of the kind rule of God touching everyone that results in the flourishing of humanity. It is literally a new world with God at the center resulting in God's blessing transforming everything it touches. A helpful way of thinking of the kingdom of God is to think of the revolution of God. We typically don't think of kingdoms anymore. We might think of the United Kingdom over across the pond, but it's still kind of scattered from our minds. But we know about revolutions, don't we? 
Our nation was founded on a revolution. When we think of the kingdom of God, think of the promised revolution of God where he turns everything upside down, sets this world to right. That's what Jesus was talking about. David Wenham in his book, The Parables of Jesus, I think hits the nail on the head when he said this. In proclaiming the kingdom of God, Jesus was announcing the coming of God's revolution and of God's new world as promised in the Old Testament. God was at last intervening, Jesus declared, to establish his reign over everything, to bring salvation to his people and renewal and reconciliation to the world. I'm not sure where the buzzing is coming from. Bear with us. Do we need to unplug that? Okay. All right, let's pick back up. Verse 18. So when Jesus asked the question, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Our antenna should be up if we're thinking along the lines of what his original audience does. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell us two short stories about the kingdom of God or the revolution of God. Stories of revolution. And I say short, I mean short. They're two sentences each or Two sentences together, one sentence each. So here's the first one. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it, says Jesus? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Here Jesus takes a seed that was notorious, not notorious, famous, proverbial, for being small, but producing great fruit. And I'm, I have to tell you, I've, I've become a fan of gardening over the last couple of years. It wasn't just something that I did to kind of pass the time during COVID lockdowns. It was, it was taking root in me before then. And one of the fi- things I find just fascinating is taking these little seeds that I didn't create and just planting them in the garden and putting a little water on them. And out comes this plant and sometimes fruit to feed my family. I passed on peppers and other things to some of you. And I'm just fascinated at the life that's found in that little seed. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a little seed, like a little mustard seed that someone plants in their garden. And it grows and it becomes this this big tree that the birds of the earth can come and find rest. There's actually an Old Testament allusion found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, was described as a man in in his accumulation of power, subduing nations around him, that grew into a big tree. And the ones he didn't slaughter (laughs) found rest in his kingdom. And so there's echoes of that. But whereas Nebuchadnezzar conquered by blood and by sword and by death, Jesus himself describes the kingdom of God coming and conquering by love. And in this case, it grows into a seed. So what's interesting is, is Jesus himself is the seed of God's kingdom. And like any seed, it has to die. He has to die. But in that death is the redemption of our souls. Listen to what it says in the book of Ephesians. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. What is Paul saying here? What is he getting at here? He's saying that Jesus, in his death, 
brought about our redemption. And it's in the mystery of the crucified and risen king that God's plan to unite all things in heaven and earth was set in motion and will one day finally be fully realized. So when we read ourselves back into the story of the scriptures, to get from that kingdom that was lost to that kingdom that was restored requires nothing less than the death of Jesus. When God comes to us in the person of Jesus, he takes the sin of his people upon himself, condemning it in his flesh so that we might go free. So that first illustration we're meant to think about. When you think about a seed going into the ground, and yet a plant comes out producing fruit and beauty, we're meant to think the kingdom of God is an awful lot like that. The growth is almost imperceptible, but it's there nevertheless, relentlessly moving forward and driving. Jesus uses one more story. He says again, he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, ah, that lacks a little bit of a punch for me. What's going on here? Well, one of the things that I know happened in 2020 was there was this big sourdough craze. Did some of you get in on that? People making sourdough in their homes and baking. Okay, y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. I know some of y'all were doing this. It was everywhere. Leaven was like sourdough. It, w- it was a starter. And it's added to uh, flour, and a great measure of bread comes out of it. And commentators say these uh, three measures of flour are designed to feed over 100 people. And so he, God said, or Jesus says here, the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman adds to flour. And you don't know exactly how it works, but it works. And what was just a little bit becomes a lot through the extensive work of the yeast that is there. And so when you think about the kingdom, we're meant to think about yeast, leaven, expanding and growing. So whereas the parable of the mustard seed is meant to help us to understand the extensive growth of God's kingdom, this little parable of leaven and bread is meant to help us understand the transformative effects of God's kingdom. So let's ask this question. Why does Luke want us to know about this? He could have easily skipped over these two little stories of revolution that Jesus talks about here. Remember, Jesus has come to tell us about who God is and God's plan of redemption for this world to get from that kingdom lost to that kingdom restored. And it runs right down the middle of who Jesus is and his plan. So Jesus wants us to know that the growth of the kingdom, this revolution of God, It's both extensive and transformative. And if you think about it, what Jesus did for this woman and healing her and bringing restoration started out small. She would have been forgotten to history if it were not for Luke recording it for us. And Jesus himself, if he did not come back from the dead, we we would never have heard of him. But what if it started out small has now grown into a worldwide movement We're going to talk about more in just a minute in the application. And the restoration of all things, guaranteed. But for now, Philip Ryken helps us in understanding this when he says, For a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows, at times invisibly and almost imperceptibly, 
until it reaches all nations with its transforming power. So friends, let me help us think through just a couple of points of application. The first one is this. Let's embrace this revolution that Jesus is talking about here. If this movement of Jesus is growing and it's spreading all over the world and it's meant to bring blessing and flourishing, we need to ask the question, has Jesus' kingdom touched my life? Have I experienced its transforming power? Am I seeing it grow and extending throughout my life? Am I finding nourishment from Jesus himself? Jesus guarantees that this kingdom is coming. In fact, when we go to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, we hear Jesus saying these words. John sets it up for us. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This kingdom Jesus talked about is relentless in its growth and in its transformative power. So let's ask the question first, has it affected me? Have I come into contact with it? There's a fellow named James K.A. Smith who really gets, I think, at what Jesus is after, which is our very heart and soul. He said, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content simply to deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. In other words, Jesus isn't content to be a guru. He doesn't want to just give you some tips for successful living. He's really come to turn your world upside down. The, the kingdom that you are so intent on building and organizing and arranging for your life to prosper. He wants to come in and turn that upside down and replace you at the center of your life and for your kingdom with him at the center of his kingdom. And this is where the rub is. Eugene Peterson said, the kingdom itself is heavily defended territory. Just like the evil one opposes Jesus, there's this inclination within each of us to want to oppose his kingdom coming to invade our lives. But that's the best invasion that could ever take place. When we lay down our arms, when we cease our war against God, when we say, Lord, come and make me yours, that's the best revolution that can take place. So have you done that? Has the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus come near to you? Is his grace and power transforming your life? Here's a second point of application. Let's pray for this revolution. If the kingdom of God is the revolution of God that Jesus was so keen to let us know about, that he says is coming, then my friends, let's desire it. And let's let it find its way into our prayers. In fact, when Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. How do we pray like you, Jesus? One of the things he said to them is to pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a longing that God's kind rule will come and supplant everything that's wrong with this world. Let me suggest, my friends, a like prayer to that is the prayer, how long, O Lord? Let me just say, you and I were never designed to handle the amount of bad news that we get week in and week out. It, it crushes the soul. I don't know about you, this last week for me mentally began with the football game at AM the week before where the students decked out in red, white, and blue, memorializing the 20th anniversary 
of the time when A&M marked the towers being struck. And this week, throughout, I, I saw on the TV that there were uh, television programs recounting exactly what happened. And my wife and I started to watch one. We got about two minutes in. I just told my wife, I can't handle this. And it's not that I didn't want to remember. It's that I remembered it all too well. Those who study trauma talk about trauma as being an imprint of harm upon your body, upon your soul, upon your mind. And oftentimes people who live through trauma, when they experience that trauma again, it feels like it's happening again. And so even just in the few moments of watching that documentary the other night, I, I felt as if it were happening all over again. And I couldn't take it. And I said, Heather, can we turn it over? And she agreed. She's like, yeah, I can't really process this right now. And it's not that we're living in denial. It's that that pain and that suffering are still so close to the surface. And so a strategy, my friends, when we experience bad news, let's not just simply groan. Groaning is a good thing to do. But sometimes we can groan and it can be disconnected from the promise of Jesus to renew all things. And so what if when we see these stories that make us groan, we followed up the groan with a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Right here, right now, on earth, in my life, in our community, in our city, in our world, just as it is in heaven. And along with that, Lord, how long? I remember when I became a Christian when I was 16 and in my early 20s, I dialed into this fact that Jesus said he's coming back. And I used to say to the Lord, I know you're coming back, but could you just hold off for a while? I want to live my life. I want to experience all that this world has to offer. Something shifted in me, and it's not just the fact that I've gotten older. A lot of people can get older and still have that desire for Jesus not to come back anytime soon. But I've experienced far too much pain and suffering in my own life and in the lives of my friends. To walk with a friend who has to bury his child, there's just something wrong with that. In the words of that book that I quoted a while ago, it's not the way things are supposed to be. A couple of you guys were on a text message with me yesterday, and we're thinking about just the pain in this world. And I just texted back and I said, I would not mind if Jesus came back today. <laughs> in fact, that would be the best thing that could happen. So my friends, let me encourage you. Jesus says that kingdom is coming. It was already breaking out in the ministry of Jesus at that time. And its growth is extensive and it's transformative. So here's the third point of application. Expect the revolution. Don't let the pain and the sorrow of this world lull you to sleep. Jesus is on the march and he's capturing hearts and he's renewing minds. And so what began as a crucified Messiah upon a Roman cross has now grown into a worldwide movement. In fact, I just looked up on Wikipedia and a few other places to confirm this. As of 2020, Christianity had approximately 2.5 billion adherents out of a worldwide population of about 7.8 billion people. It represents nearly one-third of the world's population and is the largest religion in the world. What started out with the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering has now been turned into a worldwide movement. I'll put this chart up on the screen. I don't know how well uh, it will come out for you, but this is a, a chart 
put out by a mapping network called the Growth Rate of Evangelical Christianity. And that word evangelical, we need to just define as not connected to politics. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about those who embrace the evangel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And so you can see here, all the areas in blue are all the places where evangelical growth is faster than the growth of the country's population. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? The yellow areas where we live, for example, are places where evangelical growth is slower than the country's population. And then there's a few places marked in red where there's decreasing evangelical population. But if you stop and think about it, that's really amazing, isn't it? This kingdom that Jesus preached about, its transforming effect was like a grain of mustard seed that was put into the ground and now has grown up and has blossomed to a worldwide movement. But that's not all. We get to the end of the scripture. In the book of Revelation, we're told in two different places some, some very interesting things. This first one is from Revelation chapter 4. And they sang, that the redeemed and the angels around the throne of God, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Who are they talking to? Who are they singing to? Jesus. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A beautiful picture here of Jesus redeeming people, multitudes from every nation and group and people, and he's redeeming them into a kingdom where they will reign on the earth together with him once again. Or how about this one from Revelation chapter 7? This I look, says John, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What started out as Jesus and spread beyond him to his people and from him around the world now is seen in the final event where there's a multitude that no one can number. Don't think that God is stingy with his grace. Don't think that just a few are redeemed. Here we're told a multitude that no one can number are standing before God and before the throne of the Lamb, declaring the salvation. So here's the fourth and final point of application. Let's imagine this revolution. It might transform our hearts and our minds. We sang just a few moments ago, didn't we? Life and salvation, his empire shall bring, and joy to the nations when Jesus is king. I wonder if we really believe that. If we really believe that life and salvation, his empire shall bring, and that joy comes to the nations when Jesus is king. I came across an article not too long ago, about five or six years ago, actually, from Christianity Today, and it was titled, The World's Top Missionary Sending Country Will Surprise You. I came across this as I was thinking about what does it mean to imagine the kingdom in my own life. And I thought about this. I'm like, this has to be the United States. Don't we send out more missionaries than everyone? And it wasn't the United States. I thought about Great Britain. Maybe, maybe they send out more missionaries than everyone else. People who want to see joy 
come to the nations. It wasn't that either. I was surprised to find out what nation sends out the most missionaries per capita. This is what it says. The prize for the largest percentage of missionaries per million Christians in the population goes to a contender that many will find surprising. Palestine. This country's vibrant population of Christians send 3,401 missionaries for every million Christians. Palestine's followed by Ireland, Malta, and Samoa. Isn't that interesting? This little nation in the shadow of modern-day Israel. Many people have strong opinions both ways. It's filled with Christians who imagine what the revolution of Jesus would be like if it makes its way to more and more people. So my friends, let's, let's imagine that kingdom spreading more and more around this world to more and more people. And how might we be used in that? Because the scriptures tell us that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the preview of what's coming. So Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people who relentlessly desire the revolution of God, because one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.